Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. Evening. I grew up without a Sunday evening service. And uh, I usually wasted my Sunday evening by watching a movie or something like that, which isn't a terrible thing to do. Um, But boy, do I ever love gathering again to worship with God's people. So it is a real delight to uh, be with you this evening. I want to read Psalm 116 as our call to worship. Why don't you grab your copy of the scriptures And read along with me. There are some pertinent themes in this psalm for the subject that we are addressing this evening. Psalm 116. Beginning in verse 1. I love the Lord... Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of shoal lay hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together as we begin. Almighty and everlasting one, we come before you this evening and we do raise up our voices to praise you for all that you have done. Mighty are your works, O God. Lord, as we begin, even just begin to think about all your works of salvation, all your great and mighty deeds throughout redemptive history, we are awestruck. And Lord, as we think about the one who is both Lord and Christ, Jesus, we give you praise for all the benefits that he has rendered unto us by his death and his resurrection. We praise you, Lord, that Christ Jesus sits at your right hand and intercedes for us. Lord, we are a needy people. We are afflicted with the temptations that the evil one and the darts that the evil one throws at us. We battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so, Lord, we need an advocate. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we pray, Lord, that as we handle matters pertaining to the end of life this evening, that you would be exalted. Lord, be with this four-part series over the next five or six weeks. And I pray, O Lord, that you would richly bless uh, your people, myself included, as we work through this material on dying well. You, O Lord, are good and righteous, and we want to glorify you now in song. And so we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mark, why don't you come and lead us? Mark is going to ask for a favorite. So if you have the hymn book and you can locate one of those quickly while he transitions, um, go ahead and uh, search through that. Why don't you stand to sing? Um, while you're looking for a favorite, we're also going to sing uh, number 379, Take My Life and Let It Be. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise, let them flow in ceaseless praise.
Good singing. Who has a number of a song they would like to sing? Yes. 349, which is Trust and Obey. 349, Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but a smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a not a sign nor a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil He does quickly repay. Not a grief nor a loss, not a frown nor a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust in But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay for the favor joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way what he says we will do where he sends we will go 
Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no singing. Please be seated. Before I get started here, uh, there is a wonderful section in a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. If you haven't read this book, it's well worth it. There's a section in here called Stewardship for the Purpose of Godliness and uh, a little bit, about eight pages on how to use your time in a disciplined way. Um, some of the headings are, use time wisely because the days are evil. Wise use of time is for the preparation for eternity. Time is short. Time is passing. The remaining time is uncertain. Time lost cannot be regained. You are accountable to God for your time. Time is so easily lost. We value time at death. Time's value in eternity. Those are just some of the headings in the eight pages uh, found in that section. And time really is what we are talking about so often when we bring up the subject of death. So if that is something that you would like to take home, um, just come see me afterwards. Looks like some coffee has been spilled on this book. I bought it used, so, but it's yours to keep. You can take it home and, uh, and read that to uh, your heart's delight. Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. And in the 12th verse, Moses prays some profound words, words that we might be personally hesitant to pray ourselves. Moses prays, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90 verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is a small but mighty verse. And in this verse, we come into contact with two different realities. First, we come into contact with the brevity of life. And secondly, we come into contact with the gravity of life. This verse hits at, on both of those topics in particular. Life is brief. We are told to count our remaining time in days, not years, not decades, not centuries. And earlier in the psalm, if you've turned there, verse 10 tells us that the span of our years are likely 70 or 80 years. And we know this to be true. In 2020, Canadians lived to an average age of around 82 years. That stayed fairly consistent for the last number of years. James, the brother of Jesus, reiterates this very thing in his uh, epistle, James 4.14, James says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We're living out in the country right now, and on the way to work in the morning, I get to drive by some farmer's fields for a couple of minutes, and sometimes a mist has risen over the farmer field. Beautiful. But if I were to grab a lawn chair out of the back of my car and set it up, and watch that mist, the minute the sun comes up, for any sustained period of time, mist is gone. We are a mist that appears for a little while, 
and then vanishes away. Life is brief. That verse also tells us that life is weighty. The fact that the psalmist is exhorting us to number our days means that those brief days are still precious. Every one of our days matters. Life matters. The days that are left in our lives matter. They matter to God and they should matter to us. This one life that we live is all that we get and it counts for all of eternity. I heard John Piper say in his messages about not wasting your life, he, he, he used this line and it's stuck with me ever since. He says, a very short time, a very short amount of time counts for all of eternity. I think we've all experienced the Christmas phenomenon before. When you're a kid at, and Christmas is on the way, you're going, boy, did that take forever. That whole year took forever to get all the way back to Christmas again. Or your birthday, you know, you're, you're climbing towards your birthday slowly. You know, you, we're celebrating half birthdays these days because kids are so antsy to get to their birthday, right? Man, you know, no one ever thinks that about their anniversary or about anything like that. But we think about Christmas. We get to Christmas as an adult and we go, didn't we just celebrate this? Like, it feel like, feels like a few days pass by and, and we're here again. Time just goes by so quickly. Life is brief. Life is weighty. And we, we, we make statements like, I can't believe I've finished my degree. Where does the time go? Can't believe little Nathan is almost two years old. Where did the time go? Can't believe I've almost been married for 10 years. Where did the time go? Can't believe I'm turning 30, 40, 50, etc. On we go. Where did the time go? All of these realizations attest to the fact that life is brief. Life is weighty. Every single moment matters. And thus, the psalmist helps us to understand that true wisdom is understanding by the help of God that our days are numbered, that we will not live forever, that the end will come quicker than we think. And so true wisdom takes this into account. It reflects on the end. It anticipates the end. It prepares for the end. It makes decisions based on the fact that the end is coming. And so with all of this in mind, the psalmist asks for the teaching of the Lord. He prays, Lord, teach me to number my days that I may present to you a heart of wisdom. And that is what we are asking in these evening services. Over the next five or six weeks, we want to pray that prayer. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us about the brevity of life. Teach us about the gravity of life so that our lives and our deaths may glorify the one who made us. So why, this is the question that I want to spend most of our time on this evening, why spend four weeks on this topic, dying well? Well, I've just given one reason. Psalmist has just helped us out in Psalm 90 verse 12. But I want to give us eight reasons this evening. And then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of, of, of that reasoning over the next three weeks if we can stuff it into three weeks. Uh, why spend four weeks on this topic? Isn't it morbid? Is this the best use of our time? I believe that it is the best use of our time in this season of our lives for eight reasons. So you can try, if you're taking notes, um, I'll make sure I say the numbers as we go along. Reason number one, why this topic is well worth it. 
we are all affected by the reality of death. We're all affected by the reality of death. We have all experienced loss in our life. The loss of family, maybe the loss of a spouse, maybe the loss of a parent or a child or a sibling or a cousin. We have all experienced loss in our life. Maybe we've experienced the loss of a friend. Or maybe we, well, not even maybe, we are part of a church where we experience each other's losses together. There is almost not a week that goes by in our church family where there is not someone in our midst dealing with loss. Whether it be a friend or a family member or some sort of relation, we are all dealing with loss at one point in our life or another. Um, secondly, we, we, uh, this, is, this isn't our second point here. This is sort of second subheading under the first point. We, 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 we have experienced loss in our life. We've all experienced loss. We will lose our life unless the Lord comes again. It's sort of the second subheading under this first point. We will all lose our life unless the Lord comes again. And third, this is third subpoint under the first heading, we live in a world riddled with death. There's war. Russia, Ukraine right now. They're estimating upwards of 200,000 people have lost their lives, over 200,000 people. That's the best estimates. Russia's not declaring their numbers. Sometimes Ukraine is, sometimes they're not. There are natural disasters. Hurricane Ian, recent, uh, recent hurricane, up to 150 deaths in Florida. There are accidents, automobile accidents and plane accidents. The funeral home across the street, they use our parking lot, Lounsbury. And there, there's almost not a week where we don't see our parking lot full when there's not a church function going on. There are people in Hespler dying. And this is just one funeral home in one section of our city. We are all affected by the reality of death. Main point number two, why this series? We live in a world with unbiblical ethics on death. We take the lives of the preborn. We take the lives of the elderly. We want to take the lives of the mentally ill. And we don't know how to process death as a society. My wife just saw a eulogy from a woman around our age this afternoon. Her mother was not a believer. She died of cancer. And the eulogy was something along, said something along the lines of, Mom drifted off peacefully to her next adventure. Others say at funerals, so-and-so is in a better place, watching down on us. See, the world is vague and misguided about what is next, and the world's ideas can easily spill over into Christian understanding or misunderstanding, should we say, uh, about death. We live in a world with unbiblical ethics, unbiblical ideas about death. That's number two. Number three, the Bible has a lot to say about death. If you were to start at Genesis 1 and read your way through the 1,200 pages of your copy of the scriptures or whatever it is, you would see the topic of death and life all over the place. The story of the Bible sort of goes like this. The story of the Bible goes from life to the fullest in the Garden of Eden to spiritual and physical death, Genesis chapter 3, and then back to life everlasting or, if you, do not, if you don't know Christ, to eternal death, death forever. That is the storyline of the Bible. 
Genesis chapter 2, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 3, the man and his wife take the fruit and they eat of it. Death enters, and all of a sudden we get to Genesis 3.15 and we realize we need to deliver. We're in trouble. People are going to die physically. People are going to die spiritually. Genesis chapter 4, what happens? Cain kills Abel. First murder. Death has entered this world. Genesis chapter 5 takes place. And if you've ever heard me talk about Genesis chapter 5, it's the same thing all over again. What do we see eight times in Genesis chapter 5? And he died, and he died, and he died. What's the author of Genesis trying to tell us? Death has entered this world. It is a disease that is the most widespread disease of all time. Every single person suffers with this disease. They will, we will all die. Genesis chapter 5. We die, we die, we die. Numbers 21, the people are dying because the snakes are slithering around and biting them and, 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 and destroying them because of their sin. And what do they, what do they need to do? in order to um, receive life. They need to look to the serpent on the pole, right? Here's an allusion to the cross. We need to look to Christ to be freed from death. Numbers 21, all about death and life. Deuteronomy tells us, obedience to God brings life and disobedience brings death. We get to the prophets, Isaiah 53. There is one who is pierced and crushed and slaughtered for our sins. He dies so that we might live. Then we get to the Gospels. I'm skipping over a lot of scripture here. But we get to the Gospels and John 10 tells us that Jesus has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. We get this Messiah comes onto the scene, and he has power and authority over death. How do we know? Well, Mark 5, what does he do? He raises a little girl. He says, she's not, she's not dead. She is sleeping. Rise up, he calls to her, and she rises again from the dead. John chapter 11, Jesus shows that he is the resurrection and the life. Lazarus is dead. He has been dead for a number of days. His body has started to rot. People are wondering, why didn't Jesus show up when we first went to go get him? Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, I am going to display my power and my glory. And he says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. And Jesus showcases in that moment that he has power and authority over death. And he says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. This theme of life-death is, is all throughout Scripture. John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 18 to 21, Christ would die so that we might live. Romans 5 sums up the problem of the world in one verse. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 5. Here is the problem of the world um, summarized very succinctly. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skipping down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespassed, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the, the, the meta-narrative of Scripture is about, we've got to ask this question, how can humanity, dead in their sins, come into fellowship again and live forever with the eternal God, with the holy God? And the answer of the Bible is Jesus Christ, and he comes and he dies so that we might have life. And he rises again that our resurrection might be guaranteed. The Bible is all about death and life. Revelation 21 and 22 Fullness of life for those who are in Christ and eternal death for those who are outside of him. So why this topic? Because we are all affected by the reality of death. We live in a world with unbiblical ethics on death and the Bible has a whole lot to say about it. Number four, we want to live a life of wise preparation. Why this topic? Because we want to live a life of wise preparation. It is the duty of a Christian to prepare for death, to leave a gospel legacy. In other words, to pass on the faith to children and to family, to leave a gospel legacy in the church by the way that we serve, we give of our time, we give of our resources, we give of ourself that others might know the sweetness of life in Christ. It is our duty to prepare for death through those avenues. We want to leave a gospel legacy. We don't only want to leave a gospel legacy when it comes to our families and our church, but we also want to leave a gospel legacy with our friends and our coworkers. We want those that we rub shoulders with to see the gospel of life adorned on us. It is the clothing that we wear such that when we die, our life continues to be a testimony to these people. It is the duty of a Christian to prepare for death, to prepare also to stand before Christ. The Christian is always preparing to stand before Christ. And under that heading as well, it's not only the duty of a Christian to prepare for death, but it is a, past, a, a pastoral duty of mine is to help prepare people for death. That is part of the office that I hold as a pastor and an elder. I am here to help people prepare for death. We could unpack the profundity of that um, in greater depth, but uh, we don't have time this evening. It is a pastoral duty to prepare people for death. That's number four. Number five, we live in an age of distraction. Gone are the days of simplicity, the options for us on any given day for any activity are enormous. As Kevin DeYoung has said in his book, Crazy Busy, and this is probably about the best thing in that book, busyness kills more people than bullets. We live in an age of distraction. We spend an irresponsible amount of time in front of our TV, our computer, and our phone, and that time is spent somewhere between the spectrum of, you know, fruitfulness on one side and unfruitfulness on the other. Our screen time will tell us just how distracted we are. Entertainment abounds in this world. We can fill our time and activity with as much as we want on any given day. We can watch whatever we want. We can go on whatever trip we want to. We can buy whatever, whenever. It'll be delivered to our door. We can attend this, that, and the other thing. On and on it goes. We live in an age of distraction, marketing, 
and other messaging tell us to think about the here and the now. Stay current. Keep your focus on this world. We live in an age of distraction. Number six, we tend to either avoid talking about death or forget to consider it altogether. So number one, we're all affected by the reality of death. Number two, we live in a world with an unbiblical ethic on death. The Bible has a lot to say about death, number three. Number four, we want to live a life of wise preparation. Number five, we live in an an age of distraction. Number six, we tend to either avoid talking about death or forget to consider it all together. That is fairly self-explanatory. Number seven, matters of death influence how we live our life today. The fact that we will die one day has implications for every single decision that we make in life. Will I take this job? Will I buy this house? How will I save my money? How will I give my time to the church? What does my time to work look like? How will I cultivate spirituality within the home? How will I cultivate spirituality within the church setting that I am a part of? On and on it goes. The the spectrum of questions is just unending. Matters of death influence how we live our life today. That's number seven. And then number eight, and I won't comment much upon this because we have a whole evening dedicated to this, but number eight, why this topic? We believe that heaven and hell are real. There is a seriousness about us because eternity is not a joke. So, another, you know, this could be number nine, but it's not number nine. Don't write number nine down. The reason that uh, I'm giving these sessions on these evenings is because I put together a paper for uh, a professor who used to be at Heritage, and uh, what I did was I surveyed four Puritan works. The Puritans um, were, were men who lived somewhere between 1550 and the 1700s, and they were uh, really, they, they've been a gift to the church for centuries after their deaths. They thought very deeply about theology and how it worked out in people's lives. They were prolific preachers. They were prolific writers if, you are, if you're familiar with the Banner of Truth at all, uh, Banner of Truth Publishing, Banner of Truth Trust, you will see that they just pump out Puritan works, and they're always coming up with, hey, you know, this person's works, 20 volumes, this person's works, 20 volumes. These guys just wrote a ton, and they wrote quite a number of treaties on the subject of death. And as we were going through the whole COVID season, and as I've been looking at sort of the ethics that have been coming out of government on matters of life and death, and even as I've been assessing the pastoral office and, and what, is, what is my duty as a pastor when it comes to communicating um, biblical uh, themes, um, I thought to myself, it would be very fascinating to... Um, put together a paper on death for, for the church and for the Christian community at large. And so that's what I did. I took four works 
um, by four different Puritans, and I surveyed them, and what I did was I extracted five themes from them, and I said, these guys are all talking about these five themes in particular. We're going to look at those five themes over the next three weeks uh, of our time together. Um, Here are the four men, and then I will give you uh, the five themes that I extracted from them. William Perkins. Some have said that William Perkins was the John Calvin of the Puritans. Without John Calvin for the Reformation, you don't have much of a Reformation. Without William Perkins for the Puritans, you don't have much of a Puritan movement. He's really a forebearer. So he wrote a book called A Salve for a Sick Man. George Swinnick, he wrote one called, this is a great title, The Fading of the Flesh and the Flourishing of Faith from Psalm 73 was his text. Robert Bolton, Four Last Things, Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. He says those, those four last things are what the Christian ought to meditate upon their whole life. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And if we keep those things in mind, we, we, we stay on the straight and narrow. More about that in future weeks. And then Danny Featley, Daniel Featley, wrote a massive work, uh, about 800 pages. I didn't even make it through the entire thing but it is a compilation of his funeral sermons, and it's called The House of Mourning Furnished. And the five themes, as I read through these, most of these uh, Puritan works, the five themes that arose are are as follows. Uh, Next week, we will deal with two, and then we'll deal with one, and then we'll deal with two again. The first two that we'll deal with are the necessity of repentance and the blessing of Christ. That will be in about two weeks' time, And then I think in three weeks' time, I don't have the schedule in front of me, but in three weeks' time, we will deal with the vanity of worldliness. What does the vanity of worldliness have to do with death? Well, we'll see. And then in four weeks' time, the reality of eternity and the goodness of God. Those are the five themes that these Puritans are so, uh, I mean, if they had highlighters, they would write all over their book and say, these are the things we want you to pay attention to. So why were these Puritans such, uh, you know, why, why were they thinking about these things? Uh, these days, death for us is sanitized. You know, we, uh, we don't kill our own animals, we eat, we probably, I'm, probably most of us here eat meat, but we don't kill that meat, right? Um, these were men well acquainted with death because all of their life um, was just a little bit more rough and tumble than ours was. Um, this, they lived in an era where the average life expectancy was under 30 years old, and usually families reared as many children as they had lost, in life. I mean, just a sad reality uh, in their day. J.I. Packer writes the following. He says, the Puritans experienced systematic persecution for their faith. What we today think of as the comforts of home were unknown to them. Their medicine and sur- uh, surgery were rudimentary. They had no aspirins, tranquilizers, sleeping tablets, or antidepressant pills, just as they had no social security or insurance. In a world in which more than half the adult population died young and more than half the children born died in infancy, disease, distress, discomfort, pain, and death were their constant companions. They would have been lost had they not kept their eyes on heaven and known themselves as as pilgrims traveling home to the celestial city. 
These were men and women acquainted with death, acquainted with, with, with war and with suffering and with bad medical care and all the rest. And so they wrote on it. You think about, think about the way the parish um, was um, organized back in that day. Anyone who was part of a parish would go to the parish church. And usually what was outside the parish? Someone help me out. As you walked into the church, what was, what was outside the church? A graveyard. Do we walk by a graveyard before we walk in here? Every single time someone walked in and out of church, they were, rem- they were reminded about the gravity and brevity of life. One day I will be here. This is my parish. I'll be buried here. And so there, was this just, there, there were constant, simple reminders like that all the time for the Puritans. That is why they wrote so profoundly on death. We're not going to get into those five themes this evening, and because we only have about 10 minutes left, I want us to look at three things to conclude. These Puritans all talked about three things, uh, which will sort of help us introduce these other five themes. They all talked about the certainty of death, the uncertainty of death, and preparation for death. Let's look at them. Certainty, the certainty of death. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Romans 14.10 says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. These passages tell us about the certainty of death. Uh, you know, when it comes to Christ's judgment seat, we either get there um, by, you know, if the Lord comes again, we, I guess we don't get there through death, but it, it implies death, the judgment seat of God. Death is certain. And George Swinnick highlights three facts of life. He, he quotes Isaiah 40, 6 and 7, which says, A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. As he looks at that text, Isaiah 46 and 7, he sees three truths about life. He says, man is mortal. Grass withers, flower fades. I mean, there's not much live grass right now. It's wintertime. Man is mortal. The grass withers, the flower fades. Death is certain. A voice says cry. There is a confidence in the cry. All flesh is like grass. And then he says death is universal. All flesh is like grass. Without exception, death is universal. Death, the Puritans said, does not discriminate. They were serious about communicating this. There is no position, um, station, or status in life that can get someone out of death. So quoting George Swinnick, he writes, The flesh of kings and counselors... The flesh of saints and martyrs, the flesh of high and low, rich and poor, all flesh is grass. In another place he writes, some men have great titles, worshipful, right worshipful, honorable, right honorable, but they signify no more with death than other men. They are but moving earth and dying dust as ordinary men are. Worship, honor, excellency, highness, majesty, All must do homage to the scepter of this king of terrors. No amount of medicine, money, and fame 
can keep a person from dying. Dan Featley writes a similar sentiment. He says, rich and poor, high and low of all sorts. Young men may die, old men must die, even those that are styled gods, but that by no fawning psychophant, but by God himself. Their mortality proves them to be men to themselves, though they be gods to others. What he's saying is, you know, remember the great pharaohs? They thought themselves gods. The Egyptians said, these men are gods. They, they, they are above common man. They died. Pyramids are blowing away in the wind. The great Caesars of old, they had their stamp on most of civilization. They are in the grave. And civilization has crumbled with them. The, the accomplishments of the great will even deteriorate. They will be gone and they will be forgotten. Don Whitney, in that book that I waved earlier, says, Neither youth nor strength, stardom nor stature, obliges God to give us one more hour. Everyone, everyone, without discrimination, will die. Death is certain. Death is also uncertain. This isn't a contradiction. Uh, Luke 12, uh, we see there's a rich man who thinks to himself, I'm going to tear down these barns, I'm going to throw up some more towers so I can store all my wealth, and woohoo, I'm going to enjoy that for the rest of my life. Well, little did he know he was going to die that night. Death was uncertain for this rich man. James 4, we've read it already. We are but a vapor. Death is uncertain. And William Perkins, in his treatise, highlights the fact that death is uncertain. And he, here's what he means by this. He, he, he says, death is uncertain in three ways. First, death is uncertain in time. Most people don't know when they are going to die. For many of us, death will be a surprise. We're not going to wake up one morning and say, okay, today's the day. That's it. Done. Not many of us wake up that way. I think there's actually a movie where there's a gentleman who can see the number of days sort of as a hologram above people's heads. Uh, I think that's a concept in a movie out there. I don't know what it's called. I've never seen it before. I think I saw a commercial for it. But none of us have that ability to see the number of days over Betty Ann's head. No, it's not true. The Puritans are very concerned that people will wait. Um, so, so because death is uncertain in time, the Puritans are concerned for those sorts of people who say, well, on my deathbed, at the last hour, at the 11th hour, that's when I'll repent. That's when I'll clean everything up. And they quote the thief on the cross. See, the Lord did it. He did it. He, he can save someone at the 11th hour. But they say, and I'm quoting them, and more than one of them says this, this is an extraordinary event that we should not make a rule of. Absolutely, we would be in danger to make a rule of that. So death is uncertain in time. Death is uncertain in place. Most of us do not know where we will die. We don't know whether we'll die at home or at work, in our car or in an airplane, in a hospital bed or in our own bed. Death is uncertain in terms of place. And third, death is uncertain in kind. Most people don't know how they will die. Will we die of disease or be executed? Will we, will we be in an accident? Will we be murdered? And the list could go on. And in light of death's certainty and uncertainty, the Puritans say, as we grab these two things and we say it's certain, we're all, it's going to happen to all of us unless the Lord comes again. But it's uncertain. I don't know when it will take place, where it will take place, or how it will take place. As we grab a hold of these two things, the Puritans said, we have to prepare that, 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 that necessitates preparation for death. 
Perkins writes, the most dangerous thing in all this world is to neglect all preparation. George Swinnick writes, O reader, a serious thought of thy death, that thou art but dust, would be very wholesome for thy declining and decaying soul. Going on, he says, But O what a mad man art thou, who knowest certainly of the coming of his enemy, and that when he cometh, he can both kill and damn, destroy both body and soul, yet you takest no care to arm yourself for that hour. He says, If you know an enemy's coming, you arm yourself for the hour. Death is coming. Arm yourself. Prepare yourself. Danny Feedley writes, take it in good worth, improve it for the good of thy soul, that being armed and prepared for death when it shall approach, thou mayst have no more to do but die, and, mayst, and, and may end thy days in a steadfast assurance that thy sins shall be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Feedley is saying, prepare yourself such that when death comes, all you'll have left to do is die. Because you've done all the preparation that you need to get to that hour. And so William Perkins, in his trees in particular, gets specific about preparations that should be made for death. He gives us two sorts of preparations. If you're taking notes, you don't need to copy all this stuff down or try and follow me. I can give you all my notes afterwards. It's uh, no cost to me. I plagiarize the Puritans. You can plagiarize me. He says that there are general preparations to be made. So, preparations to be made throughout one's life, and then there are specific, particular preparations to be made, which are preparations when someone is on their deathbed. When you're in the hospital bed and the oxygen is on, what then are you to do to prepare for death? Let's just quickly look at the five duties to practice over the course of your life. These are the general preparations. Here's what Perkins says. Here are the five duties that that we must perform over the course of our life. He says, first, Meditate on death in this life. Second, take away from death its power and strength through repentance. Repent of your sins. Keep short accounts with the Lord. Confess your sins to one another. Third, enter into the first degree of eternal life, namely conversion. If you have not reconciled with the Lord, reconcile with him. Number four, Accustom yourself to dying by enduring the trials of this life. In other words, show perseverance throughout life as as preparation for dying. And fifth, any good that you are able to do, do it with all of your might. In other words, if there is an opportunity that the Lord has granted you to do good in the name of Christ, absolutely do it. That is a wonderful preparation for death. Not because our works save us, but because God has given us opportunities to glorify him and to obey him and to spread gospel truth. Those are the general preparations. Here are the particular preparations. As death closes in and one is on their deathbed, there are three duties that Perkins lists. Duty number one. Uh, Duty one concerns God. He says, seek to be reconciled to him in Christ. So even on your deathbed, if you haven't done it in life, make sure on your deathbed you are reconciled to God in Christ. And then there's a duty concerning yourself, uh, the first concerning the soul. Furnish yourself against the immoderate fear of death by looking at the benefits of death and by looking at death through the lens of the gospel. So so, 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 so build yourself, um, how do we say this? Prepare yourself to face death in such a way that you will not fear it when it comes. By doing what? 
by rehearsing the benefits of death. Friend, Christ has sweetened the grave for the Christian by his death and resurrection. Death means, and we'll, we'll get into this later, death means an end to sin. You won't sin anymore after death if you are in Christ. The, the end of your struggle is death's door. And so rehearse to yourself the benefits of death and look at death through the lens of the gospel. That's the, that's the duty concerning your soul. Then there's a duty concerning the body. We should be good stewards of the health that we have been given in this life. That's, that's one of the duties that he gives us. Now, I'd love to get into a theology of the body and a theology of health and of good stewardship of the body and how we should be caring for ourselves in this life. Don't have time. But there is a duty concerning God, duty concerning oneself as death closes in. And number three, there is a duty concerning one's neighbor. And the duty concerning one's neighbor is twofold. Um, there is the duty of reconciliation with your neighbor. Is there, is there a breach in your relationship with your neighbor? And by neighbor, he's just talking about anyone that's not you. Is there a breach in relationship with your neighbor? Reconcile with them. Reconcile with them. And number two... There is the duty of leaving your charges in good order. Um, this is still for the neighbor. He says, if you're a magistrate, so if you're a mayor or a premier or you, know, you're, you, you have jurisdiction over people in a political sense, he says, make sure that you leave things in good order. If you're a minister of the church, make sure that you leave things in good order. If you are the master of a house, he's, he's talking about sort of male headship here, and saying if you're the master of a house, leave your house in good order. Always be preparing for death by leaving your house in good order. And brothers and sisters, I would say to all of us, what has God charged you with? Brothers and sisters, leave it in good order. That is where we will land the plane this evening. One of the beautiful things that Sean has passed on to me um, um, a number of years ago was an exercise that he would do with the youth. On a, on a youth night, he would get the youth to walk all the way down Cooper Street to the funeral, um, the graveyard there, and he would say to the youth, walk around the graveyard and look for a gravestone um, that, has, that, that, that marks a grave where someone was younger than you. Once you find it, study the gravestone, come back, and let's have a chat. And what he was trying to do with that exercise, and I've stolen that a couple of times since, is try to alert the youth about the brevity and the gravity of life. And and let me submit to you, this is something that we probably need to do a little bit more often. Maybe we don't need to go down to the graveyard or anything like that. But we need to remind ourselves that just because we woke up this morning doesn't mean we will wake up tomorrow. And the same goes for those who live in our household. And God has given us a duty this minute, this hour before him. And so we ought to do it with all of our might. I want to leave things there and... Um, what I'll do is I want to pray a prayer that I read in this book, Be Thou My Vision. We sold a number of these over the last month here. Uh, it's from John Calvin. I want to read this prayer, and then we'll sing one last time. Why don't we pray together? Grant, Almighty God, that as you constantly remind us in your word and have taught us by so many examples that there is nothing permanent in this world 
but that the things which seem the firmest tend to ruin and instantly fall and of themselves vanish away. When by your breath you shake your strength in which men trust, O grant that we, being really subdued and humbled, may not rely on earthly things, but raise up our hearts and our thoughts to heaven and there fix the anchor of our hope and may all our thoughts abide there until at length, when you have led us through our course on earth, we shall be gathered into the celestial kingdom which has been obtained for us by the blood of your only begotten Son. And this we pray in his name. Amen. Mark, why don't we sing? Hello. We're going to sing another uh, choice of one of yours. Um, if something 